This morning's Bible reading comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1 to 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Hey, church. Thank you so much for the chance to come and serve as part of uh, your series on the first letter to the Thessalonian church, the letter that uh, Paul uh, and Timothy and Silas wrote. Um, I've been surfing along the series with those who've been serving so far, and I've actually um, thoroughly enjoyed the process of preparing this. It's the first Bible talk I've given in more than a year. For some bizarre reason these days, most people come and get me to talk about um, something other than a passage of Scripture, and I have genuinely loved uh, deep diving into uh, these words that have lasted 2,000 years and still have a prophetic and life-giving effect today. When I was last with you, it was early March. Uh, Steve Bates was still just starting to make jokes about having enough toilet paper for everybody, and none of us knew what the word ISO meant. Uh, so much has changed since last time I was with you. Um, and for many of you, that will have been hard. And for many of you, before I see you again, it will still be hard. And so uh, maybe the best place for me to start is to pray for you the prayer that Paul and Silas and Timothy prayed for the church in Thessalonica at the end of what we call chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. And so um, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's still a good prayer. Uh, and coming straight out of that prayer, Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, start into a bracket of teaching that they open up in this way. It's the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 4. If you've got a copy of the scriptures there, hard copy or on your phone, uh, feel free to pull it out. They start what we call the fourth chapter of Thessalonians uh, with this word, uh, finally, which is kind of an amusing word because actually if you did a word count of the whole letter, they're still only just over halfway through. Uh, but then 
I guess we've all sat through some sermon where we were given false hope that it was about to finish before the preacher rattled on with another 20 minutes of riveting content. Um, some of us, perhaps me included, have even given that false hope to people at times. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not 100% sure that the Apostle Paul um, would be able to land the plane within the very tight time window that Travis gives to us when we come to serve here. Um, but if I keep going with this digression, I probably won't land in that tight window either, so I'll continue. <laughs> Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you're already doing, you should do so more and more. So what strikes me as I read those words is that Paul and Silas and Timothy coming straight off a prayer about this group of people abounding and increasing in their love and their holiness move seamlessly into saying to them, you know what, here's some things that would be really good for you to know if you actually want to live out abounding and increasing love and holiness. And this is actually just a reflection of the whole way that Paul conceives of Christian discipleship. Uh, He doesn't see Christian discipleship as something where we pray and then God magically makes abounding and increasing love and holiness happen in our lives and in the world. The way that Paul sees things coming together is that we pray, yeah, sure, of course we pray. We pray on a need-to-pray basis. And then having finished praying, God makes space for us to play our active role in co-creating our own Christ-likeness and in co-creating with him and with the whole church the kind of world that Jesus imagined was possible. Come on. Um, In my translation, the one I just read from, it's it's my preferred Bible, mainly on aesthetic grounds. I just really like the cover. Uh, In my version, it talks uh, about um, us learning how it is that we ought to live and to please God. Actually, there's a a little... um, It's a little hidden gem in there that I would have missed had you not asked me to preach on this passage. Uh, In my Bible, the word that's translated as uh, live, the English word live is actually a translation from the original language, the Greek language of a word peripateo. Uh, And if you went to my next favourite Bible, chosen again purely on aesthetics because I like the cover, and flicked through, this is the uh, King James Version, uh, the way that verse 1 of chapter 4 is translated there is this. Uh, Furthermore then, which is much more honest than finally. Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. I I don't know if you noticed the difference in the wording there, but in this Bible, uh, the word peripateo is translated not as live, but as walk. And there's a difference between those things. You know, I can, I can technically live as in not die by simply doing nothing, but I can't walk by out, by not being active. And there's, there's this sense in which I think the word walk, the English word walk, probably taps in better to Paul's model of discipleship, which is utterly about dependence. We pray. 
but is also about participation and cooperation. Paul has this vision of the Christian life where we, spliced together with the Holy Spirit and following on the teachings and life of Jesus, engage in participatory faith and learn how to cooperate with grace. So it's never all on us. But there's always space for us to be involved. This, um, this word walk actually becomes um, a really common way of talking about the life of faith within the early church. And in fact, what they're doing is picking up an even older idea, a Hebrew, a Jewish idea. Um, they had a word halakha, which was also translated into English as walk. And for a Hebrew, for the tradition out of which Christianity was born, this word halakha, this, this idea of walking, was a way of talking about their devotion to God and as well as their devotion to God, their obedience to Torah, their, their implementation of the things that God had taught them, life and community and world should look like in what we talk about as the first five books of the Bible, the Hebrew law. And so the first church go, well, we, we've always known that this is about devotion to God. We've always known that this is about obedience to the ways of God. Uh, we're going to use this word walk, but we're going to repurpose it a little bit to make it clear that now what we're doing is not just reading books and learning how to be obedient to them. Now what we're doing is reading Jesus, knowing Jesus, being spliced together with the Spirit and learning to walk in His ways. And so they start to play with this language of walking in all sorts of fascinating ways. They um, they talk elsewhere about uh, walking in newness of life. Uh, there's this whole new way of being alive that has opened up to us in Jesus and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we're going to walk in. Uh, and so elsewhere they will also talk about walking in Christ or walking by the Spirit. It's, it's this cooperative, participatory faith and grace that has become their new normal. It's... Um, it's a version of what's always been, devotion to God and obedience, but now it's flooded with beauty and texture and freedom and power and a million other things that make it better than we could ever have imagined. <laughs> the life that Jesus opens up for us is um, its a good life. Not good as in just morally good, good as in, man, I feel alive. <laughs> Good as in good news for the world. Good as in I will grow old and die never having gotten to the end of learning all that I can learn about what it is that I've been invited into in Jesus. It's that kind of good. Someone other than Paul, uh, the Apostle John, in one of his letters to the early church, he talks about not the mechanics of this participatory faith and cooperative grace, but the the direction of it, the, the outcomes that it produces. And in his uh, letter that we talk about as 1 John, at the beginning of chapter 2, he writes these words. He says, uh, Now by this we may be sure that we know him, that we know Jesus. Now by this may, we may be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. Man, 
And that's a gift and invitation for me and for you. If we abide in Christ, if we are humble and dependent enough to listen to his teachings, we could actually find ourselves living and walking just as he lived and walked. <laughs> that's that's crazy. And so when someone next time asks you, how's your Christian walk going? Which I'm going to be really honest, that's a really strange little quirk of Christian language. If you want to run an experiment on how quirky it is, just go into your normal workplace in the next couple of days and say, oh, how's your uh, hairdresser's walk going to the person who's cutting hair alongside you? Or how's your lawyer's walk going to the person who's sitting in the next cubicle? Or how's your teacher's walk going? And look at the look on their face and see how it works out for you. This is an idiomatically Christian thing that is tapping into cooperative participatory faith and grace and the fact that we are day by day learning how to hold our balance which is what a toddler learns how to put one foot in front of the other even when we're tired and it's hard and how to make sure that we never drop our eyes too long to what's at our feet, but we keep our eyes fixed on the one who's the author and perfecter of our faith, our destination, our home in Christ. It's, um, it's a walk and a dance. Eugene Peterson in his um, book, The Message, his, his translation of the Bible called The Message, puts uh, verse 1 of Thessalonians 4 this way. He says, uh, one final word, friends. We ask you, urge you is more like it, <laughs> that you keep on doing what we told you to do to please God, not in a dogged religious plod, but in a living spirited dance. <laughs> and that's the gig. Because as soon as what we're doing is not learning five books worth of rules and being obedient to that, as soon as what's happening is we're listening to the teachings of Jesus and we're learning how to tune our ear in to the ongoing counsel of the Holy Spirit, we're not doing paint-by-numbers faith anymore. This isn't just one foot in front of the other. This is some kind of three-participant ongoing dance that we're learning how to do in a way that becomes more cohesive and fluent and beautiful day by day by day. Uh, so I would argue that the three participants in the dance are, first of all, the human will, second of all, the commandments that we've received in Jesus, and third of all, the ongoing counsel of the Holy Spirit uh, in us, because he is in each of us, but, and no less importantly, in all of us in Christian community, feeding back to each other how we understand and implement the teachings that we've received from Jesus. So that the human will learns to dance the Jesus dance in our individual lives and for the sake of our world. Paul, I think, is hinting at this three-participant human will, teachings of Jesus, counsel of the Spirit, dance, when he says in verse uh, 2, of 1 Thessalonians 4, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We're, we're receiving teachings from Jesus down history on the pages of scripture. 
And he says then in verse 8, therefore, whoever rejects this, the teachings of Jesus and the way that the apostles unpack how they're to be implemented in the world, whoever rejects this, rejects not human authority, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you as an ongoing teacher, an interpreter, an encourager, and convincer, and everything else that you need to live this beautiful life and dance this beautiful dance. I'm um, I'm not sure there's ever been an epoch in human history where the human will has found it easy to slip quickly into, into rhythm with the teachings of Jesus and the counsel of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's easy in our culture, and as far as I can tell, it wasn't easy 2,000 years ago in the culture of Thessalonica. And uh, part of the reason for that seems to be that humanity has always been so thoroughly but invisibly discipled by their culture that when Jesus comes to disciple them, there's so much expectation that needs to be displaced. Even more trickily, after we think we've switched rabbis and we're only listening to Jesus, our culture is still discipling us just as invisibly, but just as pervasively and effectively through the ongoing messages that we're receiving as we talk to friends and listen to radio and watch television and read books and engage in every other human endeavour. We are all being discipled in parallel streams by our culture and by Jesus. That's tricky. (laughs) It's super tricky. And so uh, Paul, talking to a church that he absolutely loves, who he thinks is absolutely smashing the Christian endeavor, that's what the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians are celebrating, even to a church that he is super excited about, still finds the need to reteach them things that he taught them when he was with them, to re-explain and reinforce things that he knows they know, but they keep being discipled out of by the culture that they're unaware of all around them. Uh, And so when it comes to the area, for example, of human sexuality, um, for 400 years, Greek culture has been discipled by schools of philosophical thought like hedonism and Epicureanism, who have been training them to think that human pleasure is the highest goal for us as a species. And so long before Paul comes to talk to them about any attributes of Christ that could find expression in their sexuality, they already assume that they know what the best version of sexuality is. They know from their culture, or they think they know from their culture, that the highest expression of the human ideal around sexuality is by letting your passions be piqued with as many people as possible, by engaging in a complete lack of self-restraint while you're doing that so that you explore every single thing that could possibly be explored and to never be satisfied that you found it all yet but to have an insatiable curiosity about what pleasure might be just round the next corner, whatever it looks like and however you have to access it. Doesn't actually sound a lot like Thessalonica was too different from 21st century Western culture. (laughs) trained as we are on a steady diet of reality television and Hollywood movies and social media and a million other things. And I um, I don't say that to communicate personal offence on my part. 
personally trouble me at all. I certainly don't say it to look down on our culture or on the culture of Greece, um, Macedonia at the time that the, Thessalon- uh, the Thessalonian church was in existence. I, sim- I just simply say it to say, wow, isn't the task of Jesus discipling us really hard when he steps into a story that's already thoroughly discipled in another way of life? And he needs to disciple us while that other discipleship voice is constantly speaking as well. Maybe actually the right emotional response for me to feel is mercy towards myself in all those moments where I stuff it up. And mercy for everyone else who might occasionally get something wrong as well. So... um, And Paul moves from prayer and general exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 4 to essentially say, hey, uh, fornicators, huddle up. He's not coming to them to have a condemnatory, heavy, abusive chat. (laughs) He's saying there's some stuff you haven't worked out yet. His list of things that he wants to explain to them is pretty simple. Uh, He says to them, don't treat the beautiful union of people in sex as though it's just another sensory experience. Make sure you're in control of your passions and they're not in control of you. Don't exploit anyone or harm anyone in the way that you seek pleasure. And although it's not explicit in what he says, it's implicit. Don't regard human sensory pleasure as the highest goal. Instead, regard the formation of Christ's own nature in you as the highest goal of your life. It it seems like there's some tricky bits as well in him discipling them in the way of Jesus around how they relate to their Christian community, their broader community, and especially those who are in need. He starts off by saying, you guys are absolutely smashing the the generosity thing. The way that you give to those in need throughout Macedonia, everyone's heard of that, he says. Uh, And yet, he says, there's still room for you to do increase and abounding in love and holiness. And when it comes to this uh, sphere of discipling them to show family-like affection for each other and the world, he says to them, make sure that things are more simple and more calm wherever you go. Don't be hectic. (laughs) Don't be a busybody and don't be a bludger. That's, That's never made for better community. Don't draw a boundary of your love, your affection, your generosity at the edge of the church. (laughs) Make sure that you constantly remember and behave as though all humanity has just one father. And so even those who don't yet know their family, treat them like they are. Can you imagine how much better the world would be if more and more people bought into this newness of life? (laughs) Can you imagine how much better our local communities of faith would be if we continue to learn how to increase and abound in this kind of love and holiness? And can you imagine how much more satisfied you'll be when your head hits the pillow every night? If increasingly day by day you're letting the teachings of Jesus and the counsel of the Spirit show you 
ever more perfectly shaped ways of living out this lifestyle across everything you do. So, um, what might Paul and Silas and Timothy be saying across time (laughs) to me, to you, to us? Um, How might the Spirit be wanting to help our wills, our human wills, participate and cooperate more freely and more fully in the Jesusing of ourselves and the Jesusing of our world? Is there any way, as you just slow down now and dial into the counsel of the Holy Spirit, as you try and hear the faint echoes of Jesus' own teaching and life coming at you off the pages of Scripture, is there any way that Hollywood or music videos, or Instagram, or reality television have invisibly discipled you in your relationships and sexual expression that don't reflect the faithfulness and generosity and contentment and self-control and patience and kindness and goodness that Jesus wants to intentionally disciple you into. (sighs) Across all of your life. Is there any way that the nightly news or corporate training or Facebook or conversations you've had with friends have invisibly discipled you in your engagement with your community of faith, with your broader community and especially with those in need that make it hard for you to build a simple, just and peacemaking life? That's that's the world's most simple game plan. To just live a life that's simple, a life that's just, a life that makes peace wherever it goes, it utterly lacks complexity. It's only hard because our culture has been saying to us from the moment we were born that simple isn't good, complicated is good, fancy is good, accumulation of wealth is good, being well thought of by others is good. Being simple, that's that's not a high goal. We don't live in a culture where universally we're being taught day by day across everything we listen to that being just people, treating people fairly, seeing and stopping for those who are in need, we don't see that being valued. Being in a rush is good. Who do you see on the nightly news? Do you see the people who are slowing down and taking care in small acts of compassion for those in need? Or do you see the people who are rushing through life and building giant ventures and making the rest of us feel small and inadequate? Not because they mean to, but because of the way that our culture is discipling us to think about what kind of life is the best life. Do you, in in a really practical way, just this this week, do you need to talk to your family, to, to your spouse, about the kind of annual holidays or retirement you will limit yourselves to so that you can create the kind of good news for the poor that Jesus wants to be an expression of the kingdom of heaven? Learning how to put a cap on our aspirational levels of comfort is a super helpful way of making sure that we engage in the kind of prophetic generosity that God wants to prompt us to do.
Are there some small chats and friendship groups or um, group chats and text message threads that you actually need to remove yourself from or tweak your participation in this week to make sure that others are built up and calmed down when they come into contact with you? Is there someone that you had placed outside Jesus' call to love others as he loves them because they don't look like you or think like you or act like you or just maybe because they don't like you? And is it time to find some practical way of bringing that person back inside Jesus' call to love others as he loves us? So thank you for the chance to muse out loud about these beautiful ancient words. I just want to close the way I started by praying for you that the Lord may make you increase and abound in love for one another, in love for one another and for all. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus and all his saints. Grace and peace.